The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Hector Valenzuela. He is a crop production specialist in the Department of Plant and Environmental Protection Sciences at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees at Washington State University and a Ph.D. at the University of Florida. I was intrigued by his work and his projects on looking at composting, organic amendments, habitat management for pest control, cover crops, organic farming, and in particular, an article that I found on PR Watch titled The Silencing of Hector Valenzuela. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Valenzuela. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Melinda, and thank you for having me on your show. Well, I'm curious first to understand a little bit about your history in terms of how did you become interested in organic farming? And perhaps we can define for our audience what agroecology is, because I know that's an area of interest. I grew up in uh, Latin America, so I was interested always in in agriculture, and I was interested in indigenous farming practices. Mm. So when I came to the university to study in college in the United States, my angle was driven towards more indigenous type of farming, which by default has always been organic. And just because of the my concern about the environment and healthy soils, I always drifted uh, towards researching uh, organic practices. And then you ended up going from Washington to Florida to Hawaii. What led you to Hawaii? When I was graduating from Florida, they had a position open on crop production. And uh, this is exactly what I wanted to do, to work with small farmers in a tropical setting. So it was uh, pretty much what I I had always been uh, longing to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I have visited Hawaii twice And I have been impressed by the fact that it is so far from the mainland. And I remember inquiring about the food imports. And I know reading about Hawaii, I learned that it used to be totally sustainable. And then with U.S. imports from the mainland, about 10% now of food that is consumed on the Hawaiian islands are produced in your region And I thought that was not a very good place to be from a food security position. And then I read in the PR Watch article that a Hawaii Department of Agriculture report from 1969 said that Hawaiian farmers were using pesticides at a rate 10 times higher than the national average in terms of pound per acre. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your arrival to the Hawaiian Islands what you found in terms of pesticide use versus organic or agroecological farming methods, and what has changed with regard to food imports versus local regional production? Right. My job at the university is to develop educational programs to help farmers in the state, uh, vegetable growers in the state, with technical information about how to grow tomatoes, how to grow watermelons, and so on. 
So my first impression after being in Hawaii for some time was that our farmers were having a, a difficult time of farming. They were just barely making it. And this depended a lot on imports of inputs. Uh, they had to buy fertilizers, pesticides from out of state. So when you looked at it overall, it was not a very sustainable system. At the same time, there was a lot of land in Hawaii. We had a lot of resources. Uh, we have one of the, some of the best farmers in the world. And so things were not really sinking in. From the community perspective, the community had installed as part of the constitution, a constitutional amendment saying in Hawaii, we should increase self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should take care of our soils, of our land, and go back to the days when we could all feed ourselves. So things were not sinking in, and this is where I started my research on organic farming to say we can actually farm without having to rely on so much external inputs and develop that technology. Today, there's a renewed interest because of organics, because of the popularity of local food. There's a huge community interest in going back to that thinking of let's grow more of our food as opposed to uh, keep Hawaii as a plantation economy or banana republic where you just grow agro-export crops like pineapple or sugar canes rather than growing food for the community itself. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know historically that if Hawaii was at one time sustainable and not using a lot of chemical inputs, what was it particularly that sold farmers on the technology? Was it the promise of higher yields and making more money, and did that pan out? I think so. So I think this is part of the uh, a national trend that occurred during the, uh, the the last century, the 1900s, uh, after World War II, that uh, the visionaries said, we have to industrialize agriculture. We have all these chemicals that were developed during World War II, and we can increase productivity on the farms, such as like a factory, by increasing all these inputs. So this became an integral program of the land-grant university system that we shifted away from traditional farming towards more of a factory input-based agriculture. However, there was a increased close ties between the land-grant university system and the big companies that were promoting these, these industries. So it became part of the mainstream or conventional thought that to farm and to be effective and to be progressive or modern, you had to rely on all these chemicals. Uh, in Hawaii, we had the additional factor of the uh, occupied nation as a, co- as a colony of the United States, that the land was taken by big uh, landowners, big plantation owners, and they developed a model of exporting subsidized crops to other parts of the, of the, of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got an article that I found online. It was written in 2015, and I believe it was from a local Hawaiian newspaper, From Sugar to Monsanto, Today's Occupation of Hawaii by the Agrochemical Oligopoly. And I thought it was interesting that the reason why Hawaii is so attractive to big agriculture and agrochemical firms is that you've got this wonderful year-round growing season. And so a lot of research can go on. And I've been reading that there has been some harm and some community uprising because people really don't want all of these chemical sprays. They see that it's a risk for their children and their water quality. What have you been seeing there? So in the mid-1990s, a lot of the plantations in Hawaii started to close down because of the economy. 
so suddenly there was this huge potential for Hawaii to shift away and to say we're going to start to take care of the soil, to increase local food production, increase organics. But at the same time, in the global economy, uh, GMOs or biotechnology started to gain a greater force. So our political leaders and university leaders uh, started to portray Hawaii as a great uh, biotech heaven, uh, where the future of Hawaii would be based on biotechnology. So five of the largest uh, agrochemical companies in the world decided to set up in Hawaii to do biotech or GMO research. Uh, so the entire uh, narrative of the uh, focus of the discussion sh- suddenly shifted towards we should be growing GMO and biotechnology. So over the years, these became controversial with the community, first of all because they were not aware of what was going on, and later on when they realized this is basically chemical farming, this is basically pesticide farming, and over the past five to ten years, this has grown into a social movement saying we are not happy with what's going on. We should be shifting our efforts towards uh, self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because I read in the same newspaper article that there were direct financial contributions provided to the agrochemical companies, such as property tax breaks. And so they were incentivized to come to Hawaii to do their research and I am understanding that the University of Hawaii received funds as well. So for someone to speak out against that kind of farming challenges the economic advantages to the university. Correct. So we, we basically, the state basically laid out a, a red carpet for the big uh, companies to come to the state. The shift was supposed to be diversified farming, which, which means traditionally vegetables, fruit crops, ornamental crops but the policymakers kind of translated it to let's help the seed companies uh, get established in Hawaii. So we gave them land, land leases, we gave them water rights, we gave incentives to to accommodate their their development in the islands. But at the same time, we were starting to sacrifice. At the university, we started to sacrifice our traditional work, which was how to help farmers to grow vegetables, how to grow fruit crops, uh, how to provide us this level of uh, assistance, but our resources were shifted away. So in the mid-90s, as this was happening, for about 10 years, I, my work was just focused on field work. But after this GMO push came about, uh, I started to discuss internally with my colleagues for about four to five years what's going on, what is all the, this talk about a GMO papaya, where is the research showing the environmental and health risks of this technology, And after four or five years of internal discussion and me receiving no response from my colleagues, I started to interact with uh, the community that at the same time had the same concerns, questioning, is this the right direction for us to to be going to? Mm -hmm. And then emails from your superiors show that they did not want you to be speaking or sharing information that ran counter to the school's pro-GMO messages while on the job. Correct. So I I started to, the organic farmers first invited me to give some presentations to share my concerns about the potential of GMO papaya contaminating organic farms, the development of GMO coffee and other crops. And I became a full professor in uh, the year 2000. And when I went through my first uh, post-tenure review in the year 2005, 
I encountered a rather hostile interaction with my department chair who said, basically, you are not supposed to be doing any work on crop biotechnology or interacting with uh, farmers or community members that have a concern with uh, biotechnology. So that started a, a rocky road for me for about a period of about 10 years uh, where I was repeatedly t- told not to research the risks of crop biotechnology. Hmm. You know, this is chilling to me because I see this as an infringement not only of your academic freedom, but of the population of U.S. citizens to understand the truth about farming. Correct. Uh, There was a segment of the population. There was organic farmers. There were uh, community members that had a lot of of questions about crop biotechnology. And even today, if you walk in the streets, you talk to people, a lot of the people don't understand what what this this really means. Uh, So there was an important um, segment of our stakeholders, our constituents, that were seeking this level of information. This included students that would come to my lab, to my office, that would invite me to give lectures to students, colleagues, and so on. So it was important to have somebody at the university level asking these uh, type of questions. And what I encountered was uh, hostility from administrators, and I started to experience what I perceived as a direct retaliation for me uh, doing so. Did you have any supporters there? I think I had uh, supporters, colleagues, and students that supported my work, uh, but because of the climate of fear of not raising waves within the system, there was no very little vocal support saying, yeah, I I support what you're doing. Uh, It was more through private emails or conversations. Um, But overall, it was uh, me by myself at the system saying, we're going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Hector Valenzuela. He is a crop production specialist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa with specific expertise in agroecological farming and organic farming. Well, I'm surprised that you stayed with this hostile environment. Yes, uh, my my main concern is uh, this is a research one university. This is a major international university, and uh, this is the place where we should be having these type of discussions. And my concern is a set of a precedent when we hire new faculty that new faculty feel confident and comfortable to raise questions about uh, what we're doing or what we shouldn't be doing or where we should be going. But uh, I have a a deep connection to the state. We have a, in the state, we have a long tradition of indigenous farming. As you indicated, they farmed for a couple of thousand years uh, following good farming practices. So I did have a a strong commitment to promote the the proper ways uh, uh, of farming and this includes uh, agroecology and organics. Mm-hmm. Well, thank goodness you did stay, because at least there are students and community members who can have one person who sees a different way. But we can understand, you know, it's not just at the University of Hawaii. I think it's land-grant institutions all over our country that are receiving money that is so tempting because our state and federal funding for land grants is declining. And so, for example, in June 
2010, one month after you were denied your academic freedom complaint, the university received a $100,000 donation from Monsanto for scholarships. Then in November, Monsanto donated another 20000 to fund Genius Day, a program at the college that introduces students from grades 4 through 12 to basic genetics and the function of DNA. And then again, another $500,000 in September of 2011, and then $620,000 within a period of little more than a year. It is extremely difficult to turn away from that kind of money Where do you see us headed in terms of academic freedom and restoring integrity to our land and our food system? Yes, I think the the direction of our educational system over the past uh, 15, 20 20 years uh, has been based on a a neoliberal economic model, which one of the main features is to increase uh, subsidies for big business and to cut back on social programs. Uh, however, this model is obsolete in itself. It has no basis on, on scientific, uh, on, on science. Uh, and it, its main purpose is to us pretty much increase the privatization of the, univers- of the educational system in the United States. So I think the overall focus is to change this paradigm and to say, the role of the public university is to educate the public to help the next generation of students and for the university to develop environmentally compatible uh, technologies around the state. Uh, So we really have to challenge this neoliberal concept that is uh, bankrupting not only our economy but also the the fabric of, of, of our society. And not to mention the public health of individuals living on the island. I mean, we can just take so much of these toxic chemicals before we start seeing illness in our children. And I shared with you before the interview two recent papers. One was in pediatrics that had to do with children and the environmental and economic strategies for primary prevention of cancer in early life. And indeed, the report shows that environmental toxins are related to a steady rise in cancer incidence among children since the data started to be collected at at around 1970 and that the treatment is traumatic, costly, and toxic. So these are externalities to the research that's going on with a lot of these toxic chemicals. Correct. So uh, the public, uh, at least here in Hawaii, has uh, begun to realize that this crop biotechnology is closely tied uh, to the use of pesticides. So we found out through court documents that the seed companies in Hawaii are using uh, almost 100 different uh, chemical formulations. And internationally, uh, as you indicate, uh, scientific and uh, government bodies are uh, starting to make the connection between the high use of uh, pesticides and uh, human health and environmental degradation. So there are increased movements saying, first, we should move away from our dependence of of chemicals. And secondly, there's an increasing body of studies indicating there are alternatives. We can farm without almost minimizing or removing the use of chemicals. And the United Nations has recently, as you indicated, has come up with a position paper uh, indicating we should be moving away from our reliance on industrial uh, chemical methods. Uh, as well as uh, several scientific bodies, such as the 
American Academy of Pediatrics that has come with several position papers indicating the risk of uh, children uh, and their exposure to pesticides. Mm-hmm. Well, I should let our listeners know as well as you, and we've had this discussion, that as a dietitian, I am very concerned about the quality of food that we consume, the importance of biodiversity, protecting our soil and water, and the relationship between chronic diseases and the foods that we consumed, and importantly, how that food is produced. And so I want to let you know that there was a webinar for registered dietitians on genetically engineered foods. And it was definitely supported by those individuals who work within the biotech field. And what we as dietitians were told, knowing full well that dietitians are the, just as you teach farmers, we teach consumers how to eat well, the message was that with so many pressing concerns, be it the population, swells in population, climate change, the desire to have all of these delicious uh, varied food sources in our diet, that we somehow need genetic engineering to have the foods that we've come to love, such as Hawaiian papaya. Do we need genetically engineered papaya to have papaya on our plates nationally? I don't think so, and I don't think that... uh the, the industry has made the case to support their claim. And uh, I think this is the main conclusion of the uh, recent uh, United Nations reports on the right to food uh, that, that you shared with me. And they clearly indicate there are alternatives. Uh, we can find alternatives to most of the major problems that, that we encounter on the farm. One of the main causes that caused the, this problem with the disease in papaya was because they were following industrial monoculture methods of production. In the old days, we used to have papaya grown in diversified agricultural systems, so the virus was not really a problem. It became a problem uh, once they started to use large-scale monoculture farming. And the university did not look at uh, possible alternatives uh, to deal with uh, these problems. That is very interesting. So you used to have organic plots where you were doing research, and was that research funded? Did you have to write grants to USDA, or was that directly funded through the university itself? Yeah, I was I was getting uh, grants from local uh, foundations, from uh, nature farming groups in in in, in Hawaii and in in, in Japan. Uh, so it was small scale fan, uh, funding. I began the first long-term organic research plots in, in the state, in the Pacific region. Uh, but uh, I, I abruptly lost those plots in uh, 1998. And uh, later on, I found out that at the same time, the university was promoting GMO papaya and their big GMO program. Wow. So tell me about your research projects today and and how you're working to improve agriculture and public health in Hawaii. I conducted uh, research for about uh, 20 years, but uh, over the past five years, because I lost my plots in 1999 and once again in 2009, I have shifted my work more towards educational programs in the area of organic farming, agroecology, and also to do more on-farm research with, with organic farmers in the state. Now, tell me a little bit about the freedom that you have to 
make, I know at one point you had lost permission to travel, you had lost permission to conduct long-distance phone calls. Have you regained those freedoms? Yes, I got my telephone back and I got access. I, I, I'm able to go to the neighbor islands and, and work on the neighbor islands. However, it was very difficult when your entire research program is shut down uh, just because of inertia to get the, the same program again. I was moved to a, a different department, but my interaction with colleagues has also been hindered because there's uh, this kind of a uh, red mark. Uh, watch out this person. He's kind of like an eccentric. He's doing a research, uh, research that's challenging uh, the university system. So it's been difficult to, again, reestablish the research programs that I used to have back in the 1990s, mm-hmm. 2000s. You had mentioned before our interview that you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the rural areas and some of the outlying islands. Do you want to talk about that? So the, the people that have been most affected by the seed companies in, in the state, in, in Hawaii, Monsanto, Syngenta, have been people in rural communities in the state. Uh, and for about, since the year 2000, they have been uh, raising concerns about uh, extensive levels of uh, dust escapes mm-hmm. that are coming from the from the farms. The industry has about 20 to 25,000 acres in the, in the state, but they only farm about 10% of that land. That means about 80 to 90% of the land is most of the year is just sitting bare, and they work the land constantly to get rid of weeds. So there's a lot of dust that is that goes to the to these communities. Obviously, because they use so many chemicals, there's concern about both dust and pesticide exposure. So these are kind of the silent voices, the unheard voices from the, from the uh, from all these uh, debacle that that they have been experiencing these on a day-to-day basis. Uh, there was a, a lawsuit that was filed in 2012, and this concluded showing that DuPont Pioneer was indeed guilty of uh, dust, es- dust escapes on, on the community of uh, Waimea in Kauai. Uh, so I just want to share that uh, these rural communities in Kauai are actually living this on a day-to-day basis. While we talk about the theory or so on, uh, they are experiencing this exposure on, a, on an ongoing basis in the state. For people who want to learn more about your work, your research, and some of the plight of individuals living in Hawaii, where can they go? I have made uh, several presentations over the years that are uh, that, that can be found through YouTube and other websites. We have a, a group in Hawaii uh, called Hawaii Seed. Uh, we also have the uh, Center of Food Safety in Hawaii that has an office uh, in Hawaii as well as in other parts of the country that provide information about uh, what's going on in Hawaii. There's also several Facebook pages that deal with these issues for people that want to keep updated about what's going on in the state. Uh, But Hawaii is a small example of what people are experiencing all over the world. So it is good to keep up to, to what's going on in Hawaii. Well, Dr. Valenzuela, what a pleasure it has been to speak with you. My impression is that you are a brave man with great integrity, and it is a a great honor for me to bring your voice to our listeners. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank my guest, Dr. 
Hector Valenzuela, Crop Production Specialist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I will provide links to your research, to the story which I cited, and any links that you would like our listeners to go to particularly. Thank you very much for being my guest. Thanks a lot, Melinda. I appreciate it. 